Hello, and welcome to another Quarantine Tales from the Ruther Library, a podcast that was created in the halls of the Walter P. Ruther Library at Wayne State University in the heart of Detroit. But recording now is done remotely in bedrooms and basements. I am Dan Galadner, your host, and the quality that does not falter from being recorded in the bedrooms and basements is done by the amazing and talented co-producer Troy Eller English. Hi, Troy. Hey, Dan. How are you? I'm fine. I'm hot. How are you? I'm planted underneath a fan. <laughs> do, you, do you put ice bowls in front of the fan to get that real cooling effect going? Oh, I should. I should. Yes. <laughs> it, it, it was very helpful when I lived in Richmond, Virginia. That was okay. in the summer times. That was See? beautiful. There you See, go. The, you have, you know, true experience with this heat. All I can, you know, there's a reason I live in Michigan and it's because I don't like this kind of heat. I have well, to go farther north. Canada is looking beautiful right now. It is, isn't it? Oh my for God. Many uh, for many reasons. <laughs> so it's a funny thing, Troy. I, I, um, we are Tales from the Ruther Library, right? Yes. I stumbled across this great um, radio program by the San Francisco Mime Troupe called Tales from the Resistance. So I had to check them out, make sure they weren't stealing stuff from us. But... Um, <laughs> What they're doing is a nine-part series in four different genres run bi-weekly throughout the summer. Um, there's like a detective noir, adventure, horror, sci-fi, and it all comes together the last episode. Uh, like the first one is called Jade for Hire. That's the um, film noir. And this, this character was fired from Jamison.com. See, Amazon.com, Jamison. Uh-huh, and, there's uh-huh. a, and there's a big murder secret or something. So. Ooh. I know it's, it's fun. So yeah, they're fun. They're they're on the radio, but you also can get it from their website, um, sfmt.org, backslash Tales of the Resistance. So check it out, folks. Check it out, Troy. It is fun, and I know you love that kind of adventure radio. I do indeed. You do indeed. So anyway, now for something completely different, guys and gals. Uh, we are going to excite researchers once again with a source that we have made available online for your viewing pleasure and help with you doing your research from home and with restricted travel. We give you a podcast about the digitized Michigan Black History Bibliography Index. We will be talking to Dr. Lewis Jones as the staff person who oversaw the project and Maddie and Maddie Duggan and Allie Penn, who both worked on the project at different times while they were students. Now, this index was created in the mid-70s by archivist Roberta McBride, and what she created was hundreds of index cards that referenced sources to help researchers discover the history of the Black experience in Michigan. In its physical state, it was four-drawer card files that spanned the late 19th century until the mid-1970s. It's an incredible source for anybody conducting research on Michigan's Black history. It is one of those treasures at the Ruther that will expand your research in places you never even thought you would go. Now, this is just a guide to a very different sources. So it lists books, articles, theses, reports, broadsides, much more by subject, by author, um, various ways that any physical index would do. Now, these cards only point you into the direction. We probably don't have these sources at the Ruther Library, but it lists where the sources will be and what libraries. So the researchers, you're going to still have to do a lot of work here. Lewis Jones is always available for your questions, but please go to mbhb.ruther.wayne.edu and poke around. And please, guys, 
click on the tips section. That's what I did to get around it. But you will not be you will not be disappointed. It's a great source. So let's hear more from our guests about the Michigan Black History Index. So first, Lewis, can you explain um, what the Michigan Black History Bibliography is? I mean, how was it created and, and uh, who, who used it before, before it became digitized? Yeah, no, good question. Yeah, the, the, it's been around for a long time. It was created by a librarian, actually, who worked at the archives named Roberta McBride. This was in the very early 1970s, but it's pretty clear that she had been working on it for a pretty long amount of time. And so what it is, it's, it's, a, it's a card file index, and there are four drawers um, that had uh, all this amazing information and resources on uh, Black history in Michigan. And so the first two drawers are in alphabetical order according to per, uh, name or subject. And on each one of these cards uh, was a number, uh, one through like 2,093, I want to say. And the second set of drawers had cards numbered one through 2,093. And so on the, those first set of cards, um, if it, there was a, a, a card on a particular subject, there would be, um, there could be anywhere between one and maybe 20 or 30 different numbers that corresponded to the cards in the second set of drawers. Um, in the second set of drawers, uh, they had the citations, you know, where you could get that information. And you could get it at the, at the Ruther Library and at a number of other institutions in, in Michigan. Um, the Detroit Public Library, the Burton Historical Collection, that is, um, the Bentley, and a number of other places around the state. And it was a tremendous resource because it had um, some, some obvious kind of um, uh, references, but some fairly obscure references too that people would not normally find. And so over the course of the years from the time that Roberta McBride uh, would have created it up until just a few years ago, um, it was used, but not nearly as extensively as it uh, could have been used because people had to physically walk in the door to, um, to make use of it. And so when people did make use of it, they often found things that they would never have found any place else without doing a lot, a lot of research and people didn't always have the time to do that. So it pointed people in the direction of some sources that allowed them to uh, write and expand upon research topics that they had you know, previously had conceived. So we're just like really happy to have had it <laughs> uh, for it to be a resource that, that would ultimately be digitized. Yeah, I, I remember when that card catalog um, was in the reading room at the Ruther Library, and it was a very sad day when it disappeared and was mothballed. Yeah, yeah, no, um, no it was. I, and, and, uh, and, and so people that could have made use of it uh, before uh, all of a sudden couldn't or had to ask for it, and, and, and if they didn't know it was there, then, then um, they wouldn't know to ask for it, and their research uh, would have uh, uh, suffered. But you know, uh, other forces within the archives pushed for it to uh, be returned, and and um, in the course of it get being returned, there were these conversations within the archives about how can we make this available to a much wider audience. Um, 
And so at around that point, um, I was conferring with folks from the uh, student chapter of the Society of American Archivists uh, located at, at Wayne State. And um, I had at that time for uh, several years and, and continue on to this day, I was a uh, faculty advisor for that group, uh, taught and continue to teach the introductory level course in archival administration. So in, in my uh, conversations uh, at their meetings of the society of, of the student chapter, I asked, hey, I encouraged and asked if they would be interested in, that is to say that members in uh, pursuing a project where they would um, digitize the cards so that this could be a resource that would be made available online. And now I was very pleasantly, uh, so I was a little surprised, but very pleasantly surprised <laughs> that uh, Maddie Dugan and uh, uh, Nathaniel Arnst and some other people took up the charge. And uh, Maddie Dugan in particular took up the charge and, and began the work in, um, while, while in conversations with uh, staff at the Ruth or Paul Nearink in, in particular. So Maddie, um, what did you think about the project when you were first approached to help out on this? Uh, I don't really remember being like formally approached to help out. Um, <laughs> You're told to do it? <laughs> <laughs> no, I was in, uh, I was a page in the reading room while I was getting my degree and uh, Lewis requested the physical Black history bibliography and I had to find it. Um, mm -hmm. And it was like sitting on top of a shelf in the reading room, these full, heavy index card files. And to be completely honest, I don't think that I had seen an index card file outside of like a library catalog ever. Right, right. Um, so I remember like kind of scrambling to find it and not knowing what I was looking for. Um, and then I think I brought it up to Lewis and he kind of explained what it was to me. And it was just, it struck me that like, well, I'd never had to get it out before. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a really cool resource, but like pretty inaccessible. And like nobody knew it was there. And uh, I believe I was talking to Lewis about, he was like, it would be really cool if we could make this accessible. And I was like, why wouldn't we put it online? Just like that. So it was your big idea then, just casually saying, yeah, let me just put it online. It'll be easy. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if it was my, I don't know if I used the word easy. <laughs> um, yeah, so tell me, what were some of like the first steps you guys took into getting from physical card catalog index cards to starting to digitize it? Uh, do, do, uh, do you remember those first steps? Uh, Nathaniel Arntz and I, and Lewis, who was our, I don't know, like mentor for um, the student chapter of the Society of American Archivists, we kind of brought it to the group and we're like, do you think this is a good idea? How would we go about this? And I feel like the overwhelming re reaction was, well, obviously we could put that online. Like that's, that would make it so much more accessible. People could just, anybody could use it. Uh, we thought that we could maybe scan the cards and like have a PDF reader read them. Um, we mm -hmm. thought we could, you know, super easily build this website that uh, was going to be highly interactive. Um, and we also had the idea to actually find the, like locate the resources on the card so that there could be a link out either to like an actual scanned in document or at least to like the site 
for the institution where you could find that information. Um, so I think that was our right. like a little interactive website where you could search and uh, get links to to resources. So so how did that turn out then? This thinking that it would be a simple website. Um, what were kind of the pitfalls that you approached to doing this? I feel like I spent a few months in like a you know in the bottom of a pitfall hole, uh, <laughs> really. <laughs> so we the we tried to use the system on which like the Ruther site is hosted so that the Ruther could maintain this site. Um, so I kind of tried to give myself a crash course in coding, which I had never done before, in Drupal, um, mm -hmm. which I had never handled before. And um, I think myself and Laura Kennedy kind of took that on. And uh, we spent hours in coffee shops trying to figure it out. I spent hours at home. It, it was a mess. Right. Like it just, the learning Drupal was, um, <laughs> learning Drupal was very intensive and uh, Laura and I tried really hard and then eventually it dawned on me that this project hopefully would be maintained and um, you know kind of grow with the student chapter of SAA become like a more and more useful resource with finding these you know things to link to um, and I was like I can't expect I just realized that we couldn't expect future chapters of SAA to take the, to take on learning an entirely new like programming thing and how to sandbox and all of these other things uh, and how to code to keep it up. I just worried that, um, you know, because in a the student chapter of a of SAA, you get like a new set of people every couple of years. Right. Um, and I was worried that, you know, the needs and the learning there would be, would eventually get lost in translation. So it needed to be easier to upkeep. So eventually we came back to the group. I think Laura, myself, supported by Nathaniel and Allie, um, and we were like, we have to figure out a different way to do this because it has to be easier to maintain. Um, we can't expect people right. to build a new website all the time. Um, so one of the cool things that we got to do is um, Nathaniel and I went to the, the national SAA meeting and presented a poster. And essentially, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we presented a poster on the project, which I was a little uncomfortable with because it wasn't finished yet. It wasn't live yet. Um, but we met a lot of people who actually gave us some insight into what kind of resources we might use to build a better, easier resource. Yeah. Now, all right. So you're looking at these index cards. You're looking at this information, the content. What kind of stood out for you that you thought was really amazing about the Michigan Black History Bibliography? Um, you know, feeling very responsible in a way because someone had taken, I think, someone had taken all this time to put these like hundreds and hundreds of cards together and they're also meticulously cross-referenced and I think it was heartening to see that someone had put in so much time literally hand typing out these cards um, so that it would be easier to access black history for Michigan and especially Detroit um, and I think that that mm -hmm. 
that was impressive and that made me feel very obligated to do good work you know you could say this is your that was your driving force to come get this thing going yeah Allie, uh you were one of the project leaders what was what was your role in putting this all together so I kind of picked up where Maddie stopped. Um, Maddie really worked hard to get all the cards digitized. And then from there, we had the digital images of the note cards. And then the next step was getting all of that data from the note cards into something we could use then to build a website. And so, you know, utilizing volunteers that were students and, and now a lot of them are alumni. Um, we looked at the note cards and then we entered the data into Excel spreadsheets and then another person reviewed the data so that it, all of the, um, it was all accurate, it all matched. And so then it would be an accurate resource we could then upload into a website. So what kind of things did you learn on the fly or uh, learn as you go about doing this kind of project? I mean, it sounds very simple, but I'm sure there were some things you had to learn about it. Um, I think you know, I think the hardest part is making sure that you know what everybody is working on, making sure that nobody's working on the same chunk of data, um, making sure that people are doing it right, that, you know, one person isn't doing the data entry different than another person, that everyone's interpreting the note cards the same way so that, you know, everyone is doing it similar so that when it came time to upload into the website, me and uh, Taylor Gibson, who was the practicum student on this project, she and I didn't have to work too hard, basically redoing the data that all the data was set so that it could just be easily uploaded into Omeka. Standards, I mean, standards, standards, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. And I, and I think that that was a tricky thing is some people interpreted um, one, you know, we used Dublin core and we just kind of tweaked it, the metadata standard. And some people, thought that one field meant one thing and then other people meant right. thought that one field meant another thing. And so it was really key that we had like meetings every month to discuss, you know, where everyone thinks the data should be. It's a huge undertaking and, <clears throat> excuse me, and you did a great service to this project as well as applying to the uh, Carnegie Whitney grant from the American Library Association. Um, how, why did you apply for this grant and what, what did it do to enhance this, this project? Um, I applied for the grant. Um, you know, it's kind of funny. I I did it all within a week and I, I thought it was kind of, a, I know everyone says, oh, you need a lot of time to write a grant. And I, it was only like a week or a week and a half. And, and I really got the ball churning and, and I was really fortunate to have a lot of great people who were like, well, let's just do it. Um, and I applied for it because part of what we wanted to do was, you know, this resource was created in the 1970s. And some of those items might not necessarily be available at the institutions that are listed within the bibliography. And so what, what we wanted to do was to hire someone who could then, you know, go to WorldCat or go to the different institutions that are listed to verify whether or not that item still exists. Because to us, the last thing we wanted was to send a researcher to an institution and have the institution come back and say, oh, no, we actually don't have that item. Right, right. I remember uh, when the card catalog was in the reading room, people assumed that it was just in the Ruther Library. But if you looked at the card catalog, it said it might have been across the street at the Detroit Public Library at the Burton or somewhere else. Um, so now that it's digitized, Allie, um, why should people use this collection and for what purpose do you think? African-American history and women's history are also, are always one of those places where 
the narrative is lacking. And I think what the bibliography does is it allows you to, you know, find resources that without it, you wouldn't have known they were available, you know, and I think that that's really key and having it available on the website means someone who is working on Detroit, but might be going to Harvard or might be at the University of Washington can then research, you know, what resources are about, you know, the 1967 uprising or earlier riots within the city of Detroit, because there were like four. And so having that resource allows you to find things you probably wouldn't have found without it. That's so true. I mean, I was poking around last night uh, and at the website and looked up, um, I, I think it was the search, keyword search police. And it is some obscure, odd, various resources that are there that I don't think anybody would ever find without this amazing bibliography. Lewis, you are our standard historian on staff. Um, you're the only one with a PhD in history, I think. So congratulations on that. Um, what are some of the things as an historian would would use this collection for as well? I mean, we just know there's some unique resources, but what kind of subject areas that are really unique in this collection? Yeah, um, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to think of specific subjects that um, historians might be interested in, but it's it's just the whole range of subjects associated with the history of African Americans in Michigan. Um, everything from from slavery to um, you know things happening uh, during Reconstruction and and then afterwards the Underground Railroad. Um, you know periods of segregation and, and housing discrimination. The whole gamut of, of subjects associated with African Americans in, in Michigan, and again, people find things there that they just wouldn't find anyplace else, and answer questions or uh, research questions that they may have had but didn't really know how to uh, explore or how to get information for. And this uh, provides a number of those kind of resources and leads to other resources. What the project also did, um, as students at, at Wayne State, um, this allowed students to, to apply the knowledge that they learned uh, in a very practical kind of way. And getting grants in this field, this, this is a huge thing. So that was part of the education that Ali and others you know, had to figure out on their own, but they did, you know, in large part based on you know, the, the uh, instruction and, uh, that they had learned over the course of the previous years as, as students. So, Well, thanks, guys. This has been very informative for um, our audience as well as me, knowing that it's digitized on our website. Um, thanks again, guys. Yeah, and actually, can I say one more thing? Oh, no, Lewis has one more thing to do. <laughs> I really wanted to thank um, uh, Maddie Dugan and uh, Nathaniel Arnst, Ali, and, and, you know, uh, uh, Laura Kennedy and Taylor Gibson, uh, who are work, really working under uh, Ali's uh, direction, uh, because together they 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 like took the um, the ball and got it over uh, the goalpost, so to speak. Because there was some work that still needed to be done that hadn't been done, and then Ali found this this uh, this this grant, you know, that allowed the work to continue on. I'm not sure how long it would have taken otherwise without. Um, you know, that initiative and that collective uh, effort there. Um, we, we wouldn't be having this conversation now uh, had it not been for that. And on that note, thanks, guys.
Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers of Tales from the Ruther Library are Dan Glogner and Troy Eller-English. Special assistance from the Ruther Podcast Collective, including Bart Bilmer, Elizabeth Clemens, Megan Courtney, and Paul Neering. Of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. To learn more about the Ruther Library, or if you have any questions, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. Ooh, that's new. That's a new feature. That is. Look at us with our fancy paid uh, subscription now. I know. <laughs> I had Let's fun. See. I made a poll. Nice poll. Let's see. How badly did Dan mispronounce your name during this podcast interview? Eh. Liberty Gibbet. <laughs> Almost you Now, I'm not Bush. <laughs> oh, are you supposed to answer these questions? <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm putting meh. I didn't do that bad. Is Troy just having way too much fun okay. with me and my, my mush mouth? So we, we need to put one of these and say submit, right? <laughs> All right. There you go, Troy. All right. You were having too much fun sitting there. Yeah. This is the problem now with full subscription now. We're going to have polls on how bad Dan messed up on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, so this is going to be real fun. Yeah. You're going to okay. polling. You're going to raising hands. You're going to tell me to go slower. Oh, how did it go? Meh. All right. Who did Kofit? Kofefe. Kofefe? <laughs> oh, what was that again? That was something Trump said, right? In a, yeah. In a tweet? That's right.